I've treated hundreds of patients and trained thousands of healthcare professionals over my 15-year career. And one thing I've learned through that experience is that most people are really confused about supplements, or they lack a clear strategy or plan for how to use supplements to improve their health. That's why I created Adapt Naturals. It's a supplement line designed to add back in what the modern world has squeezed out and help you feel and perform your best. Our ancestors' diets were rich in the essential vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients we need for optimal function. But today, thanks to declining soil quality, a growing toxic burden, and other challenges in the modern world, most of us are not getting enough of these critical nutrients. I formulated Adapt Naturals using the principles of evolutionary biology and modern research to fill the nutrient gaps that we face today and replicate the nutrient intakes found in an optimal ancestral diet. Our flagship offering is called the Core Plus Bundle, a daily stack of five products that gives you everything you need each day, from essential vitamins and minerals like B12, folate, magnesium, and vitamin D, to phytonutrients like bioflavonoids, carotenoids, and beta-glucans. You can also order the products in the bundle separately if that works better for your needs. The Adapt Naturals products are made from the highest quality, food-based, or bioidentical ingredients. From cellular and immune health, to brain and nervous system support, to blood sugar and heart health, we've got you covered. Your supplement cupboard is about to get a lot smaller. We also created an app called Core Reset to help you get your nutrition, sleep, movement, and stress management dialed in. Because no matter how good our supplements are, and they are really good, you can't supplement yourself out of a bad diet and lifestyle. The best part is that you get this app at no additional cost when you order the Core Plus bundle. Head over to adaptnaturals.com, that's A-D-A-P-T naturals.com, to learn more and start feeling and performing your best. Hey everybody, Chris Kresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. And one of the most common questions I've received over the years is what role dairy products can play in a nutrient-dense whole foods diet. On one end of the spectrum, you have folks who believe that we shouldn't be eating dairy products at all. These are people in the paleo nutrition community and, and in many alternative or integrative or functional medicine communities. Uh, they would argue that dairy products are inflammatory and linked with lots of different diseases and that we just shouldn't be eating them because human beings haven't eaten dairy for very long. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the conventional medical view, which is that dairy products are health-promoting and should be included in the diet when well-tolerated. So in this episode, I'm going to explore what the scientific evidence says about this claim and share a little bit about my clinical experience as well. Ready? Let's dive in. So no matter where you personally stand on this question of dairy products, there's no doubt that it's a contentious issue in the nutrition community. As I mentioned in the intro, on one end of the spectrum, you have folks, for example, in the paleo nutrition community, represented by initially by Lauren Cordain, who claim that dairy is not fit for human consumption uh, for two reasons, primarily. Number one, because it's an, a Neolithic food, meaning it was not consumed during the Paleolithic era, and therefore it's not part of our evolutionary heritage. And then because of proposed physiological mechanisms by which dairy causes harm, uh, when it's consumed, like inflammation, as an example. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have 
the conventional medical view that dairy is healthy when it's well tolerated. You have like the Weston A. Price Foundation, Nourishing Traditions, who've uh, advocated for full fat, often raw dairy products and, and the health benefits there. Researchers like Stefan Guiné, Chris Masterjohn, Kurt Harris, who's not really writing anymore in the health world, but used to, and people like myself. Uh, in my first book, The Paleo Cure, I argued that dairy can be part of a healthy whole foods diet if it's well tolerated. So rather than just share opinions <laughs> about this topic, I of course want to review the research and what the research says. But before I do that, I want to address one of the arguments that's often made as to why we shouldn't eat dairy products, because I think it's kind of a worthless argument, but it's one that I hear really often. So I, I just want to bring it up before we dive into the, the research and the details. So in the, this, this is particularly common I found in like the vegan community and, and the raw food vegan community. Um, but I've, I've heard it from other people too, which is that we shouldn't, humans should not consume dairy products because we are the only mammal that uh, drinks milk into adulthood. As you probably know, most mammals, including humans prior to about 10, 12,000 years ago, only consumed their milk from their mother prior to being weaned. And then once we were weaned, we didn't go on consuming dairy products after that. And so the claim is that because of that, we you know, we shouldn't uh, consume milk or dairy products. The problem with that argument is there are lots of things that uh, human beings do now, today, that no other mammals do. In the world of eating, uh, a good example would be uh, dark chocolate. You know, we consume dark chocolate. I don't know of any other uh, mammals or animals out there that are cultivating and producing their own chocolate and eating it. Uh, but we do, and it seems to have many health benefits if you look at the research. Uh, we cook our food. That's another example. Uh, I don't know any other mammals or animals that are cooking food, and yet cooking food has been shown to increase nutrient absorption and provide many health benefits. Some scientists even believe that cooking food is part of what made us human because it enabled us to extract more nutrients more quickly, spend less of our time gathering and eating food, and um, led to larger brain and uh, the intelligence that distinguishes us from other animals. Uh, we also fly on airplanes, we drive cars, we use uh, phones, and certainly some of those things have downsides, but they also have tremendous benefits. So I don't think it's a very good argument that uh, we shouldn't do something just because other mammals or animals aren't doing it. So I just wanted to start there. Now, let's talk a little bit about the background of dairy uh, consumption amongst humans because I think that's important to set the stage. So uh, dairy product consumption didn't really begin until about ten to 12,000 years ago. So it's true. It's a Neolithic food. It's, it was not part of our habitual uh, food consumption during the Paleolithic era. But there was a reason that dairy products uh, started to be consumed, and this is true, you know, for most behaviors that are preserved from an evolutionary perspective, they do serve some purpose or they wouldn't continue. So it, it seems from, from the most recent research that 
consumption of dairy arose in different parts of the world separately or, or distinctly. Uh, one was the Middle East, another was East Africa, at least those two. And dairy products provided a great source of hydration, um, which would have been protective during periods of drought, and it also provided a meaningful source of calories and nutrition. So in those parts of the world where people began to consume dairy products, that behavior was preserved over time and then spread to other parts of the world. Now, it is true that human beings, we require a particular enzyme called lactase to digest the sugar and milk lactose. Prior to the emergence of dairy consumption in those areas, humans only produced lactase when we were babies prior to being weaned because mother's milk was the only source of milk in the diet. Once we were weaned, we didn't need to continue to produce lactase, and the body would just shut that down, and we, we would not then be able to digest milk into adulthood. And today, that's still true for two-thirds of the global population. In other words, only about 35% of the population around the world continues to produce lactase into adulthood and is thus able to digest lactose, uh, the sugar in milk. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this later in the show, but it's worth just pointing out briefly that even if you're one of the 65% that doesn't produce lactase in adulthood, that doesn't mean that you can't enjoy dairy products. Uh, there are many ways that you can still benefit from dairy if you choose to, even if you can't digest lactose. So after, you know, around 10, 12,000 years ago, we had that uh, first emergence of pastoralist cultures that raised animals for milk. And then that spread to other parts of the world, particularly Northern Europe and Scandinavia, where today about 95% of people are lactose tolerant because they, they do produce the lactase enzyme into adulthood. So your personal tolerance of, of lactose, the sugar and milk, will depend on your genetic heritage. And of course, that's not black or white because uh, we, we are a true melting pot in most places in the world. Most people have mixed genetic heritage. So you can think of lactose tolerance as more of a spectrum than an off-on black-white binary function. Um, most people have uh, you know, fall somewhere on that spectrum. So some people are completely tolerant of lactose. Other people are completely intolerant to the point where the, even if they have a, a minute or small amount, they have trouble. Uh, many people are, are somewhere in between, and it's more of a threshold-based tolerance where if they, they can tolerate, you know, some amount of lactose, but if they consume a, a whole bunch of it, they don't do so well. That's uh, what I've seen in my, my clinical practice working with thousands of patients over the years and, and the feedback I've gotten from the thousands of healthcare practitioners that I've trained as well. Okay, so with, with all of that context in mind, let's move into talking a little bit about the research. Lauren Cordain's group published some review papers proposing various physiological mechanisms by which dairy causes harm. Uh, one was a paper by Melnick et al. called Milk Signaling in the Pathogenesis of Type 2 Diabetes. 
and they present a theory that milk consumption beyond the weaning period could overstimulate pancreatic beta cells and promote beta cell death. And since the proliferation and death of beta cells are hallmarks of type 2 diabetes, it follows that milk consumption must contribute to type 2 diabetes. But if that theory was true, we would expect to see increased rates of type 2 diabetes in people consuming dairy products. In fact, we don't see that, and we often see the opposite. For example, one study looked at serum levels of transpalmitoleic acid, which is a fatty acid found in, in dairy fat, and correlated uh, those levels with risk factors for diabetes. And they found that higher circulating levels of transpalmitoleic acid were associated with healthier levels of blood cholesterol, inflammatory markers, insulin levels, insulin sensitivity, even after adjustment for other risk factors. And during the follow-up period, people with higher circulating levels of transpalmitoleic acid had a much lower risk of developing diabetes, with about 60% lower risk among participants in the highest quintile of transpalmitoleic acid levels compared to people in the lowest quintile. So put more simply, this study directly contradicted the theory that was posed in that milk signaling paper and found that people with the highest levels of fatty acids, uh, of this particular fatty acid from dairy products, had about one-third the risk of developing diabetes over a three-year period. And I'm going to cover some more studies that, that clearly show that dairy products uh, either don't increase the risk of diabetes or, or reduce it. Another study found that people with the highest levels of milk fat biomarkers were at lower risk of heart attack. For women, the risk was reduced by 26%, and for men, it was 9% lower. Another study showed that people who ate the most full-fat dairy had a 69% lower risk of death from cardiovascular disease than those who ate the least. And then a, a large review of 10 studies found that drinking milk was associated with a small but significant reduction in heart disease and stroke risk. So this is research from the you know, 2010 to 2015 period. I want to review some more recent research um, to give you an idea of what the, the uh, studies over the past 5 to 10 years have shown as well. So there's a paper that was published in uh, Advances in Nutrition in 2016 called Comprehensive Review of the Impact of Dairy Foods and Dairy Fat on Cardiometabolic Risk. I'm going to quote from this paper because it's pretty straightforward. Uh, this comprehensive assessment of evidence from RCTs suggests that there is no apparent risk of potential harmful effects of dairy consumption, irrespective of the content of dairy fat, on a large array of cardiometabolic variables, including lipid-related risk factors, blood pressure, inflammation, insulin resistance, and vascular function. This suggests that the purported detrimental effects of saturated fatty acids on cardiometabolic health may in fact be nullified when they are consumed as part of complex food matrices such as those in cheese and other dairy foods. Thus, the focus on low-fat dairy products in current guidelines apparently is not entirely supported by the existing literature and may need to be revisited on the basis of this evidence. So several interesting things about this paper and this conclusion. Number one, no harmful effect of dairy products uh, for cardiometabolic risk factors uh, and in fact, in, in many of the studies that they reviewed, they saw benefits and improvements with people consuming dairy. The second interesting point is that 
uh, low-fat or non-fat dairy was not better than full-fat dairy. And again, in many cases, actually full-fat dairy shows more benefits and improvements than non-fat and low-fat dairy. And I think the reason for that is uh, what we just reviewed. There are some fatty acids in full-fat dairy products like uh, trans-palmitoleic acid, but also conjugated linoleic acid and a few others that seem to have particular benefits. Um, I'm going to cover these in a little bit more detail shortly, but I just wanted to point that out as we review this paper. There was another study a, a couple years earlier than that published in the European Journal of Nutrition by Stefan Guillenet, uh, who's a friend and colleague. He was at the University of Washington at the time, a PhD who studied the neuro, neurobiological regulation of fat mass. And they reviewed uh, 16 studies and found that high-fat dairy intake was inversely associated with measures of adiposity. Inversely associated means that people who consume more high-fat dairy had better metabolic health in this case. And this association was not seen with non-fat or low-fat dairy. So that's a very interesting finding. Another paper published more recently, also in the journal Advances in Nutrition in 2019, called Effects of Full-Fat and Fermented Dairy Products on Cardiometabolic Disease. I'm also just going to quote directly from the abstract here uh, because it's, it's quite clear. Okay, here we go. In fact, the weight of evidence from recent large and well-controlled studies, systematic reviews, and meta-analyses of both observational studies and randomized controlled trials, so a broad range of different types of research, indicates that full-fat dairy products, particularly yogurt and cheese, do not exert the detrimental effects on insulin sensitivity, blood lipid profile, and blood pressure as previously predicted on the basis of their sodium and saturated fat contents. They do not increase cardiometabolic disease risk and may in fact protect against cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes, end quote. Can't get more clear than that. So yet another paper, a large review meta-analysis of other reviews finding that uh, full-fat dairy not only doesn't increase inflammation or, or harm metabolic or cardiovascular health, it generally improves it. And then the last paper I want to talk about was a randomized controlled trial from American Journal of Clinical Nutrition 2021. It's called Impact of Low-Fat and Full-Fat Dairy Foods on Fasting Lipid Profile and Blood Pressure. This was a trial of about 70 participants where they had a four-week run-in period uh, with limited dairy intake, and then they randomly assigned people to one of three diets, either containing a limited dairy diet or switching to one with almost three and a half servings of either low-fat or full-fat milk, yogurt, and cheese for 12 weeks. They measured a bunch of markers, and they found that in men and women with metabolic syndrome, a diet rich in full-fat dairy had no effects on fasting lipid profile or blood pressure, compared with diets limited in dairy or rich in low-fat dairy. Therefore, dairy fat, when consumed as part of complex whole foods, does not adversely impact these classic cardiovascular disease risk factors. I could go on. I'm, I'm just sharing a selection of the research to give you an idea, but there are tens, if not hundreds, of studies uh, investigating this question. And as I've indicated from the reviews and meta-analyses that I've shared, uh, the conclusion is quite clear. Dairy products and full-fat fermented dairy products in particular seem to have uh, benefits for cardiometabolic function and uh, several other markers of health. 
I've been writing and speaking about the harms of industrial seed oils for years. They're an enormous problem. They've been linked to widespread health and environmental issues, and yet they're in almost everything we eat. Zero Acre is here to change that. Their cultured oil is an all-purpose cooking oil with over 90% heart-healthy and heat-stable monounsaturated fats. In fact, it has more monounsaturated fat than even olive and avocado oil, and it has a much higher smoke point and a clean, neutral taste, which makes it perfect for everything from cooking and baking to salad dressings. I use it to cook my eggs in the morning, uh, ground beef, uh, pretty much anything that I'm going to cook that might have a higher smoke point and that I don't want the oil to have an impact on the taste of the food. It's become one of my favorite cooking oils. And since it's made by fermentation, it has a 10 times smaller environmental footprint than other vegetable oils. I'm a huge fan of this product. I think you'll love it as well. And Zero Acre is offering our listeners free shipping on their first order. So go to zeroacre.com slash Chris or use the code Chris at checkout to claim this deal. That's Z-E-R-O-A-C-R-E dot com slash Chris. To live your healthiest, longest life, you need to understand what's going on inside your body. People age at different speeds, and generic annual blood work doesn't properly evaluate your biological age, but Inside Tracker does. Inside Tracker is a truly personalized nutrition and performance system designed to extend your health span and slow the aging process. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. Add InnerAge 2.0 to any plan to calculate your true biological age and see how you're aging from the inside out. For a limited time, get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Chris Cresser. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Chris Cresser. Paleo Valley's beef sticks are definitely one of my favorite snacks. They're unlike anything else on the market. They're made from 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef and organic spices, and they are naturally fermented, which gives them this really amazing flavor. In fact, they were recently voted in Paleo Magazine as one of the top snacks of the year. One reason I love Paleo Valley is that they're committed to making the highest quality whole food products that are free of junk ingredients. They're compact and easy to take on the go, especially when I'm out in the mountains and away from civilization. Go to paleovalley.com slash Chris and use the code CRESSER15 to get 15% off. So why would that be? Why would full-fat dairy in particular be more beneficial than non-fat and, and low-fat dairy? Well, we already talked about it a little bit. Um, some of the fatty acids in dairy pro products like trans acid seem to have unique health benefits. We also know that some of the compounds that are present in high-fat dairy products like butyrate and conjugated linoleic acid have benefits that over the past few years have become much more clear. Butyrate provides energy to the cells lining the colon. It inhibits inflammation, which may explain why dairy is not inflammatory, uh, and may prevent colonic bacteria from entering the bloodstream. In fact, butyrate's anti-inflammatory effect is so strong that we, we use it in functional medicine and even in conventional medicine to treat 
serious inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's disease. One trial showed that four grams uh, per day of butyrate for eight weeks induced complete remission in a group of Crohn's disease patients. Uh, another fatty acid in, in milk fat is called phytanic acid, and it's been shown to reduce triglycerides, improve insulin sensitivity, and improve blood sugar regulation in animal models. Conjugated linoleic acid is a natural trans fat found in dairy products. I know you're probably familiar with some artificial trans fats, which are very harmful, but conjugated linoleic acid is a natural trans fat, and it's been shown to reduce the risk of heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. Dairy fat's also a good source of fat-soluble vitamins like retinol, preformed vitamin A, and vitamin K2 when it comes from grass-fed cows, and those can be difficult to find elsewhere in the diet. And then, of course, dairy is a good source of other nutrients like bioavailable calcium. Most people do not get enough calcium in, in the diet, and there aren't very many uh, good sources of bioavailable calcium. On paper, dark leafy greens like spinach are a good source. So for example, one serving of spinach contains about 115 milligrams of calcium. But what the food label won't tell you in that situation is that the bioavailability of calcium in spinach is extremely low. It's about 5%. So you're only going to absorb about 6 milligrams of that 115 milligrams of calcium in that spinach, whereas the bioavailability of calcium in milk is in, on the order of 30 to 40%. Uh, what this means is you'd have to consume 16 cups of spinach to get the same bioavailable calcium that you get from one glass of milk. Now, I, I know some of you are thinking, but I can't drink milk. It makes me, it does, I don't feel good. We're going to talk about that because it, it's true. Milk is not, milk and dairy are not appropriate for everybody. But for those that can tolerate dairy, this is the main point I'm trying to make with this podcast. If you, if you can consume dairy products and you feel good and you're not lactose uh, intolerant, you're not sensitive to the proteins in dairy products, the research overwhelmingly shows that it's a beneficial food, particularly when you consume high-fat dairy products and particularly when you consume organic dairy products from uh, animals that have been grass-fed and raised on pasture without hormones, antibiotics, uh, GMO food, etc. And then the question of raw dairy and A2 versus A1, is, you know, those are other topics which I'm, I'm not going to cover in this show. I've talked about those before, but there are ways of, of kind of making dairy products even more health-promoting. Okay, so now that we've covered the research on dairy products in general for cardiometabolic health, uh, inflammation, insulin, heart disease, all of, all of that, we've talked about why full-fat dairy tends to be more beneficial for cardiometabolic health due to the unique compounds that it contains. I want to talk about another criticism of dairy products, which is that, it, that, that consuming dairy has a negative impact on bone health. And then after that, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the practicalities, like how to know if you're in, uh, intolerant to lactose or the proteins in dairy, and then how to address that in the diet. So the claim that dairy products contribute to osteopenia and osteoporosis is largely based in, this, in the acid alkaline hypothesis. Now, I've debunked the acid alkaline hypothesis in general in 
on my podcast and podcast episodes, also blog articles. So I would really encourage you to search for Chris Kresser Acid Alkaline if you haven't seen or listened to that content. And if you still believe that um, the acid and alkaline content of foods that we eat makes a significant impact on our health because there's just no evidence to support that and lots of evidence that contradicts it. I'm going to focus right now on the specific claim that dairy products acidify our bodies and, and contribute to osteopenia and osteoporosis. So again, this claim is based on the acid-ash hypothesis of osteoporosis, and the idea is that when we consume foods that have that are high in phosphate, they leave an acid ash after digestion, which lowers the pH of our, of our blood. Then the body supposedly compensates for this uh, to restore normal blood pH by stealing alkaline minerals like calcium from the bones, which then decreases bone density. Okay, so there are several problems with this hypothesis, and we can use a 2011 study that specifically addresses the dairy acid balance osteoporosis connection to highlight those. This study is called Milk and Acid Base Balance, Proposed Hypothesis versus Scientific Evidence. And the authors review both the acid-ash hypothesis in general, and then the specific claim that dairy contributes to osteoporosis. And not surprisingly to me, at least, after reviewing the evidence, they reach the same conclusions that I have. The studies just don't support this hypothesis. First, they emphasize that urine pH is not indicative of systemic pH. In fact, Except in cases of serious renal insufficiency, kidney disease, diet has no impact on serum pH. If it did, we'd be in a lot of trouble because the pH of our blood is maintained in a very tight range, and if it deviates significantly, we can die. So if, if human beings had to carefully monitor the acid-alkaline content of their diet, we would not have survived this long because, as you know, our, our distant ancestors didn't have any concept of acid-alkaline balance. There were periods of, you know, varying food availability. It wouldn't make sense from an evolutionary perspective that we could, that we could so easily alter such a critical factor that would determine our survival by just shifts in what we eat. Second, the bones don't even come into play in the regulation of serum pH. That's the job of the kidneys. Any acid ash that's left behind by the foods we eat can be easily dealt with and eliminated in the urine. This is why your urine changes pH depending on what you eat. It's just a sign that your kidneys are doing their job. And that's important to understand because advocates of this hypothesis often recommend or even sell uh, urine pH tests, and, and they claim that if the pH of your urine is low, that means you're your body is acidified and you need to consume a bunch of alkaline foods and that will actually can lead to changes in urine pH, but that doesn't mean anything is changing with your serum pH and, or that it's having any impact on your bone health or, or overall health. Uh, what, what's also particularly interesting is that even if you accept this acid-alkaline hypothesis in general, the authors of this paper cite two studies that indicate that milk actually leaves an alkaline ash as opposed to an acid ash, based on measurements of urine pH and net acid excretion following milk consumption in clinical trials. So even if we go with the acid-alkaline hypothesis, this study found that milk is, is an alkaline food, not an acid-forming food. So the whole hypothesis just completely falls apart when you really look at the evidence. Perhaps even more important, 
it's helpful to look directly at evidence that links dairy consumption directly to bone health. Instead of coming up with a proposed mechanism like acid alkaline hypothesis and, and, and you know, looking at that intermediary mechanism, it's best to just go right to the direct clinical endpoint that we're concerned with, which is bone health. So what do studies that have looked at this show? Well, uh, they show that drinking milk tends to lead to positive calcium balance, meaning that more calcium is absorbed than excreted. Other studies show that phosphate in general, which is in milk products, but also in other foods, increases calcium retention and improves bone health, which is why phosphate is found in lots of bone health supplements. Uh, increased dairy consumption is consistently associated with lower rates of osteopenia, osteoporosis, and better bone health across many different cultures around the world. Uh, for example, increased dairy intake in postmenopausal Korean women was associated with a decreased risk of osteoporosis. Another study found that in the U.S., dairy intake was a significant predictor of osteoporosis among postmenopausal women, meaning women who consume more dairy had lower rates of osteoporosis. And in Poland, higher dairy consumption during childhood and adolescence predicted better bone health in adults. Um, again, these are just three studies I'm picking that are representative. There are many other studies in the scientific literature that support the connection between dairy consumption and better bone health. All right, so that's, that's what the research says. It's pretty convincing, especially if you review the bulk of the evidence, not just these studies that I've selected, um, but I, I chose ones that were representative. I chose large systematic reviews that looked at all different types of evidence, um, other reviews, meta uh, excuse me, randomized controlled trials, observational data, prospective studies, uh, retrospective analyses, etc. And they all point to the same conclusion that dairy consumption, particularly full-fat dairy, is beneficial for cardiometabolic and bone health. Okay, now that we've reviewed the evidence, let's talk about some of the practicalities. It is true that uh, many people do not tolerate dairy products well, and there are two reasons for this. One is that some people are intolerant of the proteins in dairy products, and they can have an IgG-mediated intolerance, which is a, you know, can be mild to serious, but it's not a true allergy, or some people can actually be allergic to the proteins in dairy. This is fairly uncommon, actually. I, the, the prevalence studies I've seen range a bit, but it, it's generally in the 1% to 3% range from what I've seen. Whereas lactose intolerance, the inability to digest the sugar in milk, is much more common, as we discussed earlier in the show. That affects two-thirds of the global population. However, even if someone is lactose intolerant, that doesn't mean that they can't enjoy some dairy products. So uh, ghee is virtually has virtually no lactose in it. Butter has very little lactose. Hard cheeses, particularly those that have been aged for a while, like cheddar, have almost no lactose. Even you know, fluid cream, whipping cream, uh, full full fat whipping cream is fairly low in lactose. And then you know, as you go down the line, you have like soft cheese and fluid milk, which are which are quite high in lactose. Uh, yogurt and fermented dairy. Uh, their lact the lactose content in those products can vary depending on how long they've been fermented. So the longer they've been fermented, the lower the lactose content will be. 
Um, so 24-hour at-home fermented yogurt or kefir will often be virtually free of lactose. So as you can see, there are many different options uh, for dairy products for people who want to get the benefits of calcium and the fatty acids that are in dairy fat and the other nutritional benefits of dairy, in addition to uh, the delicious taste you know, for people who like dairy products. Even if you're lactose intolerant, you can still enjoy those, those products and you know, your mileage will vary. For some people, if they're extremely lactose intolerant, they may not be able to consume much dairy, much of those products, uh, even the ones that are low in lactose. But for others, they can eat quite a bit of those products and not have an issue. Speaking personally, I don't do well with fluid milk and some, you know, too much soft cheese or, you know, store-bought yogurt, but I can have hard cheese, ghee, butter, cream, and homemade yogurt and kefir all day long with no problem at all. Uh, if you're intolerant of the protein in dairy, that's a little bit more challenging because almost all dairy products have contained dairy protein. The exception would be ghee, and then butter is fairly low in protein as well. But definitely if someone's allergic to, to the proteins, they're not going to be able to tolerate butter usually. They may be able to tolerate ghee. If it's just an intolerance rather than an allergy, it will depend on how significant the intolerance is. In terms of testing, um, there are some tests out there to screen for dairy protein intolerance or allergy. You know, a typical food allergy test would should test for dairy proteins. Uh, in terms of intolerance, there are labs like Cyrex. The Array 4 panel is good for dairy proteins, and then uh, Vibrant Wellness has a food intolerance test that screens for dairy proteins as well. If you work with a functional or integrated medicine practitioner, you can probably ask them to order those tests. Uh, if you want to know about your protein tolerance, uh, when it comes to lactose intolerance, there are also tests out there, but I've found that the best and most, the most effective method, because it's more of a threshold-based condition rather than just a black or white binary thing, is an elimination provocation protocol. So you remove all dairy products from your diet for a period of time, and then you start to add them back in in, or, in descending order of lactose content. So you start with ghee. Most people will be fine with that, even people who are extremely lactose intolerant. Then you go to uh, butter. Then you could go to hard cheeses, uh, which are almost free of lactose. Then you could go to 24-hour at-home from uh, homemade kefir or homemade yogurt. If you still do well with that, you could go down to um, store-bought yogurt and uh, store-bought kefir and so on down the line, soft cheese, you know, fluid milk, etc. And if, it's, if you're fine with ghee and butter and hard cheese, but then at some point you start reacting to dairy products, maybe when you start consuming, you know, yogurt from the store or fluid milk, then you know you have some level of lactose tolerance. If you were intolerant of proteins, you would have reacted to the hard cheese because it's virtually free of lactose, but it, it's a, it has plenty of dairy protein. So hard cheese is, it can be a good uh, benchmark for, for differentiating between lactose intolerance and protein intolerance. But that's the general process I use in my practice with patients. It works pretty well. And since everyone's sensitivity tends to be pretty individual, 
it's often even more effective than doing the tasks. So hope this was helpful. I hope you learned something. Um, it's interesting to me that dairy products are so hated on in the you know, alternative functional paleo communities because when you look at the scientific evidence, it's clearly beneficial from a health, you know, health perspective if it is well tolerated. So that, you know, that's that's the crux of it. I I do think it's worth pointing out that in all of the studies that I mentioned, they didn't segment people according to their tolerance of lactose or dairy proteins. And they just took a, a sort of broad sample of people. So I think we can almost guarantee that there were people in those studies that were lactose intolerant or were intolerant to the proteins in dairy and yet still experienced some of those cardiometabolic benefits. That's interesting to me. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that people who are intolerant of dairy should consume it. Uh, I don't think that they should because I think it could be problematic in those cases. But I'm just pointing out that even without segmenting people, those studies still showed benefit. And if they had segmented people, perhaps they would have shown even more benefit. So I'm going to put some links to articles I've written on this topic with more information um, and scientific references. I'll also put links to some of the references that I brought up in the show that aren't present in those articles. You can always check out the show notes to get this type of information from any episode of the show. Once again, I want to thank you for listening. Uh, please keep sending your questions in to chriscresser.com slash podcast question, and I'll see you next time. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.